Greetings and welcome again to our Last Day Events Explained series here on Audioverse. My name is Norman McNulty and it's a privilege to be with you again for part two in our series. And today we are addressing the abomination of desolation. Before we get into the presentation, I'm going to address a few questions that came in. And for those of you who have questions, feel free to send them in to the email that you see here on the screen, contact at audioverse.org. We got a number of good questions this week, and I'm just going to go through a couple of them right now. So Julie asks a question. Thank you for the series. My question is, how do we know that we are not one of the foolish virgins? Also, how do we make sure that our faith and relationship with Christ is strong? And it's a great question. How do we know whether or not we're one of the foolish virgins? The parable of Matthew 25 makes it clear that the foolish virgins don't have the oil in their vessels with their lamps. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5:22 and 23 are a description of the Holy Spirit being in your life. And that's the fruits of a converted heart. And how can we have a strong relationship with Christ is to spend time with him every day in Bible study and prayer communicating with him and that's how the fruits of the Spirit grow in our lives and so that's a great question and we definitely want to make sure that we are wise and not foolish. Another question comes in from Connie. She wants to know what it means to prophesy again and is this the message of the judgment of the living? Well the phrase prophesy again is found in Revelation chapter 10 verse 11 which comes immediately after what we see to be the great disappointment and this message of prophesying again is actually the call to give the third angel's message. The Millerites gave the first and the second angel's message up until 1844, but the third angel's message, which includes the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, is given after 1844. So when does the judgment of the living begin? As best as I can tell, it's when the National Sunday Law begins. That's when the church is tested. That's when the fruits are seen. And then probation closes sometime after the National Sunday Law begins. Um, there were a few other questions that came in. Um, one of them that I thought was also important to discuss comes from Stan. And he wants to know on what basis do we conclude that the midnight cry is the same as the loud cry. And this is a great question and it's worth mentioning as well. You know, Ellen White says in Review and Herald, August 19, 1890, referring to the parable of the ten virgins, she says that this parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. Now, what she means by it having already been fulfilled to the very letter is that the Millerite movement, they were a fulfillment of the parable of the ten virgins, and the midnight cry in their history took place when the date was set for October 22, 1844. They believed that Jesus was coming on October 22, but that date was not set very clearly until August of 1844, specifically at a camp meeting on August 12, a message given by Samuel Snow. That was the midnight cry phase of the Millerite movement. For 
The parable being fulfilled again to the very letter happens again at the end of the world with the Second Advent Movement, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and the midnight cry in the parable at the end of the world is the loud cry when the latter rain is poured out and the church goes forth proclaiming the message, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. That correlates with the loud cry message of Revelation 18, which as we saw last week, concludes with the message that her sins have reached into heaven, Babylon's sins have reached into heaven, God hath remembered her iniquities. And Ellen White says on Last Day Events, page 198, that Babylon's sins reach heaven when the law of God is made void by legislation. And one other question came in, questioning whether or not other incidents where God's law has been violated through legislation could constitute a fulfillment of that. And it doesn't, no other laws that have been that have been passed that violates God's law. For example, even the law that allows homosexuals to marry specifically meets what Revelation 18 is describing because the law that is enforced nationally and then eventually internationally that changes Sabbath to Sunday is a sin that reaches all the way to heaven and is the fulfillment of the final events of Earth's history. So, great questions that have come in. Thank you for, for passing them along, and please keep them coming. If I didn't respond to your question, we may address them in later presentations based on the topic at hand. And so, one other thing, and then we're going to have an opening prayer here. I just want to remind you, if you're interested in a copy of my book that I've written on Daniel, Practical Living in the Judgment Hour, you can get a copy from Remnant Publications. Now's a great time to be studying and to be sharing with others, and so I want to remind you of that as well. I want to go ahead and have a word of prayer now as we get into the heart of our study for today. And so let's just ask God to be with us as we study about the abomination of desolation. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study and to learn. I just pray in a special way that you will guide us through the study on the abomination of desolation. I pray that it would be very clear to all of us. pray that my presentation would be clear. I pray that the understanding would be clear for all those who are listening. And I pray, Lord, that we would be ready when you come. And so pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, the abomination of desolation. You know, this is a topic that many in the church find to be very fascinating, and it's, it's an important topic because Jesus actually makes reference to it in Scripture. And so when Jesus makes reference to it in Scripture, we definitely want to study this as well and understand what he's talking about. And so let's look at these three gospel accounts. There's three times where Jesus addresses this concept known as the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24, verses 14 and 15, Mark chapter 13, verse 14, and in Luke chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. If it's in these three Gospels, you know that it's important for us to study. Jesus addresses it. He wants us to study it, and so we want to take a look at it. Now, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to, to get them out and, and turn with me to this important passage where Jesus is speaking. And again, Matthew 24, 
is a chapter where Jesus describes the signs of his coming and of the end of the world. And so Matthew 24, verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Then verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. So Jesus is saying that the gospel is going to go to the whole world and then the end will come. And then he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand, then you need to flee. Now, the fact that Jesus tells us that you should go to the book of Daniel, read it, and understand it, tells us that we want to do that. And so that's important for us, and we're going to go to Daniel here in just a few minutes. That's not the only account. We go also to Mark chapter 13, verse 14. This adds some further information. So in Matthew 24, we see that the abomination of desolation is standing in the holy place. And he says, go to Daniel to understand this further. In Mark 13, verse 14, here we read, But when you shall see the abomination of de desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So, Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation is standing in the holy place. What does that mean? And then in Mark 13, verse 14, the abomination of desolation is standing where he ought not, or standing where he's not supposed to be. One last gospel account is in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. And this makes things even clearer. So notice what Jesus says here. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries into thereinto. So Matthew 24, abomination of desolation is standing in the holy place. Mark 13 abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not, or where it's not supposed to be. But in Luke 21, we see that it's the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. And so, um, well, specifically, it's mentioned as army surrounding Jerusalem. And we're going to see that this is the Roman army. This is the initial fulfillment. And remember, Jesus mixes the signs of his coming and of the end of the world with the destruction of Jerusalem. So you have this initial application or um, interpretation for these passages that relate to the destruction of Jerusalem. But we're also going to see how this applies to the end of the world. Now, Ellen White weighs in on this concept of the abomination of desolation and tells us further, or gives us some helpful clarity on this topic. This is Great Controversy, page 25. Jesus declared to the listening disciples the judgments that were to fall upon apostate Israel, and especially the retro retributive vengeance that would come upon them for the rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. Unmistakable signs would precede the awful climax. The dreaded hour would come suddenly and swiftly, 
and the Savior warned his followers, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And she's quoting Matthew 24 and Luke 21 in that paragraph. And then she goes on to say, when the idolatrous standards of the Romans should be set up in the holy ground, which extended some furlongs outside the city walls, then the followers of Christ were to find safety in flight. When, when the warning sign should be seen, those who would escape must make no delay. Throughout the land of Judea, as well as in Jerusalem itself, the signal for flight must be immediately obeyed. So notice, the holy place is a territory of ground outside the city wall of Jerusalem that extended a, a set of furlongs or a certain amount of space beyond the city walls. So that's where the Roman army ought not to stand. It's compassing Jerusalem. And then she concludes by saying, He who chanced to be upon the housetop must not go down into his house, even to save his most valued treasures. Those who were working in the fields or vineyards must not take time to return for the outer garment laid aside while they should be toiling in the heat of the day. They must not hesitate a moment lest they be involved in the general destruction. So Ellen White makes it very clear that when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem in the territory considered to be holy territory or holy space, this is not the holy place of the sanctuary. This has confused some people. This is a territory of space outside of the city of Jerusalem. Um, that is the abomination of desolation. Now, just to add some further clarity to the abomination of desolation here, the abomination that is taking place here is that you have idolatrous Roman standards from a pagan nation being placed in what is considered sacred ground. So an abomination is to unite the sacred with the profane, the sacred with the idolatrous, the sacred with the common. That's the abomination. And after the abomination of uniting the sacred with the profane, the desolation would follow. And in this case, the abomination, again, is the idolatrous Roman standards of the Roman army. You have pagan idols on their standards that they're placing in the holy ground outside of the city of Jerusalem. That's an abomination. And after the abomination takes place where they can pass or surround the city of Jerusalem and they're standing where they ought not to be, then the desolation or the destruction of Jerusalem takes place. So that's what the abomination of desolation means in the immediate application of Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And we're going to see that there's an end time application from what Jesus says here. So let's move along here. So interestingly, Ellen White already makes it clear that the reason why there was there was the abomination of desolation, which desolated or destroyed the city of Jerusalem, is because the Jews rejected the Messiah. Now, you know, sometimes I hear people say that the Jews actually never had a close of probation, that that they continue to be the Israel of God and we simply joined them after Jesus went to heaven. That is not true. Their probation closed as a, as a nation in 34 AD and the execution of the close of the probation took place when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Now Jews can certainly be saved, but they as a nation are not the chosen of people of God any further. The Christian church is the Israel of God from the time of 
the close of probation for the Jews in 34 AD all the way until the second coming. Now Daniel 9, 24 through 27 actually describe the abomination of desolation and it's done so theologically and prophetically in connection with the rejection of the Messiah. And so you see the rejection of the Messiah at the end of the 70 weeks and as a result of the rejection of the Messiah, you then get the abomination of desolation. Now, Daniel 9:24, you see very clearly um, the prophecy of the 70 weeks where Christ would come, and there was the decree to restore and build Jerusalem in verse 25. But then in verses 26 and 27, you have part A and part B. The first part of 26 and 27 talks about Messiah, how he will be cut off, but he would confirm the covenant with many for one week, which is the last week of the 70 weeks, which we understand the 70 weeks were 490 years, and Jesus came, his ministry began in the last of those 490 years, the last seven years of the 490, and he was cut off in the midst of that last week, three and a half years into the last of the 70 weeks. As a result of that, in part B of verses 26 and 27, it says, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that's the temple, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and under the end of the war desolations are determined. Now there's the desolation portion of the abomination. And then in the second part of verse 27, it says, in the, and for the overspreading of abomination. So there's the abomination. You have desolation in verse 26. You have abomination in verse 27. For the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation of that determined shall be poured upon the desolator. That's what the word means at the end of verse 27. Now the people of the prince that shall come, that shall destroy the city, this has been discussed in Daniel chapter 8. Now if you're not well versed on Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 and how the king of fierce countenance in Daniel 8 connects to the people of the prince that shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Study up on that. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this. But the point is this. Daniel 8, you have a king of fierce countenance understanding dark sentences who would come and destroy God's people. And that is from the curses that Moses gives to the nation of Israel, there's the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy 28. And in Deuteronomy 28, Moses tells prophetically that if you don't follow the covenant, the curses will be poured out and a king of fierce countenance understanding dark sentences will come and destroy you as a people. Daniel 8 first identifies that king of fierce countenance prophetically, which makes Daniel very upset. And then chapter 9 we see that after the 70 weeks of probationary time that are given to the Jewish people, that prince or that king would come and destroy the city and the sanctuary as a judgment for the Jews rejecting the Messiah. This is the abomination of desolation. The nation of Rome came and destroyed the Jewish nation in 70 AD. They wanted to preserve the, the Jewish temple. Titus didn't want to destroy the temple, but nothing could stop the destruction when that time came, if you read the history. So it's an interesting, fascinating history. That's the primary application of the abomination of desolation. But there's more to the story. Ellen White, we 
read this statement last week, but it's worth reading again in context with the abomination of desolation. Ellen White makes this statement in Testimonies, Volume 5, pages 464-465. It is no time now for God's people to be fixing their affections or laying up their treasure in the world. The time is not far distant when, like the early disciples, we shall be forced to seek a refuge in desolate and solitary places. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for flight to the Judean Christians, so the assumption of power on the part of our nation and the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. So notice there's an end-time application. The end-time application is that the National Sunday Law is our abomination of desolation. Now, let's keep reading here. It will then be time to leave the large cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes and secluded places among the mountains. And now instead of seeking expensive dwellings here, we should be preparing to move to a better country, even a heavenly. Instead of spending our means in self-gratification, we should be studying to economize. Every talent of God should be used to his glory in giving the warning to the world. And certainly, when you see what's happening in the world around us, if you're investing in this world with your money, you're investing in the wrong place. This world's going to fall apart very rapidly at the rate it's going. And we want to make sure that we're laying up treasure in heaven. But again, the initial fulfillment of the abomination of desolation is the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, placing its idolatrous standards in the holy place and in the territory outside of Jerusalem, and then it destroyed the city. That's the abomination of desolation. The end-time application for God's people is the National Sunday Law. Now, what's the abomination of desolation with the National Sunday Law? Well, here's the abomination. The abomination is that a law is passed that proclaims a common secular day to be sacred. That's an abomination trying to unite that which is common with that which is sacred. There's the abomination. And when church and state unite to create a law that unites the sacred with the profane, which is, there's a law that says we should worship God, but people are being told to worship God on a day that is common or secular. That's the abomination. Then we see the desolation that follows is that those who don't go along with the law will be persecuted and threatened with death. That's the abomination of desolation. So that's what we're looking at. Now, interestingly, there's more than one place in the book of Daniel that describes the abomination of desolation. And some people get confused by this. But the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11.31, which is the second place that we find the abomination of desolation mentioned by name, this is not the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. This is a different historical fulfillment. And we're not doing all of Daniel 11 right now in this presentation, but basically if you study this out, the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11.31 is the union of church and state, first with Clovis using his army to give assistance to the papacy, and then in 538 there's a decree from Justinian, first given in 533, but enforced in 538 when Belisarius drives the last barbaric tribe out of the city of Rome. And that decree by Justinian 
allowed the bishop of Rome to have control over the state. So now the church has control over the state. That's an abomination. And when that abomination was formed in 538 in its completeness, that led to then desolation throughout the 1260 years where there's the persecution of the saints who don't go along with the abomination of the union of church and state. And this sets the stage for the final events because Ellen White says in Manuscript Releases, volume 13, page 394, that seems similar to what's described in Daniel 11, 30 to 36, which includes this abomination of desolation where church and state unite. She says scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So Daniel 9 shows that the first abomination of desolation was the Jewish nation being destroyed by the pagan Roman Empire. But then Daniel 11 then sets the stage for the end of the world by showing that the abomination of desolation for the end of time starts when church and state unite with the Roman Catholic Church state power. And we know that the Roman Catholic Church state power receives a deadly wound in 1798 where it no longer has power over the state. It's still a church entity, but it lost power over the state. But at the end of the world, when the deadly wound is healed, church and state unite again, and the abomination of desolation will be an issue again at the end of the world. So we want to be watching how that all plays out. So I want to take you back to Matthew 24, verses 14 and 15, as we look at this concept of the abomination of desolation. And there's a key connection here. Verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. And then Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation. So the application for the end of the world is that God's people are going to take the gospel to the world for a witness. It's not simply going to be a declaration. There is going to be seen a demonstration, and that final demonstration of the gospel is Revelation 18, where an angel comes down from heaven having great power, great authority, and the earth is lightened or illuminated with its glory, where the gospel is not only preached, but it is demonstrated. And what's been lacking in the church till this point is that too many times when we see a great evangelist or a great preacher we exalt the messenger rather than the message and rather than Christ and we have a tendency to take credit for the work that Christ is trying to do through us but when the loud cry message goes out and the earth is lightened with the glory of God's character nobody's going to be caring about taking credit for the power of the gospel that's seen in our lives and that's being proclaimed and so the gospel is going to go to the world for a witness now, yes, the Seventh-day Adventists, we've done a good job over the last 150 years of being evangelistic and taking the gospel to the far corners of the earth. And that's part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. But the final fulfillment is the witness component where it is demonstrated, not simply proclaimed. And then the end will come. And then we see that simultaneously to the giving of the loud cry message you have the sunday law taking place and so that's an important component of matthew 24 verses 14 and 15 that there's a demonstration or a witness of the gospel in addition to the proclamation of the gospel now let's look at a couple of key points so how does the abomination of desolation repeat itself 
at the end of the world. Ellen White again mentions in manuscript release, volume 13, page 394, that just as you see the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11:31, she says scenes similar will take place at the end of time. Now, she doesn't say identical. Some people get carried away and try to make an identical repetition between those verses. It's similar but not identical. It's a pattern. So at the end of the world, you see in Daniel 11:40 that the king of the north receives a deadly wound from the king of the south. I believe that's 1798 at the beginning of verse 40. And then in verse 41, the king of the north makes a comeback against the atheism that delivered the deadly wound. And he enters into the glorious land. Now in Daniel 11, whenever the king of the north or the king of the south enter into a territory, it's for the purpose of conquest. The glorious land is the territory of God's people. I've already mentioned that earlier in the book of Daniel, the Jewish nation ceased to be God's chosen people in 34 AD. So please don't tell me that at the end of the world, the territory of God's people is still literal Israel. It's not. It's God's denominated people who are followers of God. And so the papacy enters into the territory of God's people for the purpose of conquering them. And the way the papacy tries to conquer God's people is through a law that will force God's people to sever their allegiance with the God of heaven, which is the law of God, including the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath, by following a man-made law that shows that the papacy has power over the church and the state. And that's what we call the mark of the beast. This is the renewal of the abomination of desolation in verse 41. Now next week we're going to talk about the four stages of the Sunday law, which you can see in Daniel 11, 41 to 45. I'm not going to go through the various stages. I'm just letting you know that verse 41 is a repetition of history from Daniel 11:31, where now you see the abomination of desolation again. And when we get to the end of Daniel 11, you see what we would call the final siege of Jerusalem because there's a message that it's tidings from the east and the north that infuriates the king of the north and he goes forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And then in verse 45, he plants the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Now the glorious holy mountain is Mount Zion on the north side of Jerusalem, and the king of the north is planting the tabernacles of his palace between the seas. Now we believe this would be the Mediterranean Sea, and then there's also, that's to the west, there's um, the Dead Sea to the east, and the tabernacle represents the place of worship, the palace represents political authority, so you're not uniting you're uniting political authority with a place of worship that's the union of church and state in the context of the papacy going forth to destroy and utterly to make away many. That's a death decree. So by the time you get to the end of Daniel eleven, you have a death decree. And this death decree is associated with a Sunday law that if you don't go along with this Sunday law that first was enacted when the king of the north enters into the glorious land, by the time he comes down to the glorious holy mountain, which is Jerusalem, which is where God's remnant are found, he 
threatens a death decree, and it's at that time that Michael stands up to deliver his people. And, you know, we'll have some time to break down Daniel 11 a little bit further, but I'll say this. Please don't tell me that Michael stands up to deliver his people based on a Middle East regional conflict. No, Michael is standing up to deliver his people because the remnant is under siege by the end-time papal power who has enacted a death decree against God's people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the final siege of Jerusalem, you can see it in Daniel 11.45, that's the final abomination of desolation as it reaches a climax. Now, just to wrap things up here, some people have great interest, especially when they see that the abomination of desolation is again mentioned in Daniel 12, um, verse 12 specifically, um, as there's a connection, or it's, well, it's mentioned in Daniel 12, 11, and then verse 12 is a time prophecy, but people are curious as to what the 1290 and the 1335 day prophecies are referring to in Daniel chapter 12. So you have the, the abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. You have the abomination of desolation mentioned again in Daniel 11, 31. And then you have the abomination of desolation mentioned again in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And what you see here, Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12 says, From the time that the daily shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. Now, I've heard some say this is the climax of the book of Daniel. You can't tell me that the climax of the book of Daniel is talking about historical events from 508. Well, in fact, actually, it's not really focusing on 508, but if you say that the climax of Daniel 12 is 508, that would be like saying the climax of Daniel 814 is 457 BC. It's not. It's 1844. And these prophecies in Daniel chapter 12 are referring back to what Daniel 1131 mentions, and that is that in 508, there's this abomination of desolation where Clovis of the Franks unites his secular army with the Roman church in order to give them political power in Western Europe. That's the beginning of, that's 508, so that's the beginning of your 1290 and 1335 day prophecies. And so some believe, however, that these are literal time prophecies that start at the National Sunday Law. They say that the word for days in this chapter is the Hebrew word yam, which they say is used for literal days. However, they don't take into account that this is the same word in Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4, verse 6, that we have historically used the Seventh-day Adventist to show that a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. Furthermore, when you get to Revelation chapter 13.5, which talks about a 42-month prophecy, which is the 1260 years, the word for months in Revelation 13, verse 5, is the same that's used for the literal months throughout the New Testament. And so, don't be confused by some of these fanciful interpretations that try to make the end of Daniel 12 into a reapplication of time prophecies. Unfortunately, I've seen people use these prophecies to create dates for a national Sunday law. In fact, there was a video a couple of years ago that was viewed by over 200,000 people that tried to set a date from when the Pope came and spoke to a joint session of Congress to count 1260 literal days from that point to when a national 
National Sunday Law would start, and then you go 30 days beyond from the National Sunday Law to a death decree, and then 45 days um, beyond that to um, when Jesus comes back. But that's not an appropriate way to interpret these prophecies. Ellen White makes some very clear statements that these people um, overlook. This is early writings, pages 74 and 75. Time has not been a test since 1844 and, an ever, uh, and it will never again be a test. The Lord has shown me that the message of the third angel must go and be proclaimed to the scattered children of the Lord, but it must not be hung on time. I saw that some were getting a false excitement arising from preaching time, but the third angel's message is stronger than time can be. I saw that this message can stand on its own foundation and needs not time to strengthen it and that it will go in mighty power and do its work and will be cut short in righteousness. So those who are reapplying the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 to literal prophecies beyond their historical fulfillment are false teachers. And I'm saying that, and you can send in questions all you want, but that's a false teaching um, that those prophecies are reapplied. LMY has more to say. So referring to the 1335-day prophecy, this is from letter 28, 1850. Ellen White says, We told him, Brother H., of some of his er errors in the past, that the 1335 days were ended and numerous other errors of his. So there was a brother in the past that was teaching that the 1335 days have another application. She says, No, that's an error. And then this statement, Last Day Events, page 36. Our position has been one of waiting and watching with no time proclamation to intervene between the close of the prophetic periods in 1844 and the time of our Lord's second coming. So the truth about these is that these prophecies from Daniel 12, 11, and 12 are referring back to Daniel 11:31. The starting point is 508. This takes you... Um, from the 1290 years takes you from 508 to 1798, the 1335 years takes you from 508 to 1843. The significance of this is that after 1798, God's people are no longer scattered. And for 1843, there is a blessing for those who came to that point. The, those who would be part of the Millerite movement would gain a special blessing. And from 1844 to the Second Coming, there are no time prophecies. We have a message that is based on character preparation, not of date setting. And so my final appeal is this. God has raised up the Second Advent movement to take the gospel to the world, not simply as a proclamation, but as a demonstration, as a witness. Then the end will come. And when God has a people who take the gospel to the world as a witness, to whom he can entrust his latter rain power, then we will see the abomination of desolation known as the National Sunday Law. And I have news for you. God's not waiting on the Pope. God's not waiting for the President and the Pope to form a conspiracy to create a National Sunday Law. That will be the trigger that lets us know that Jesus is here, but God is waiting for a people who can give the gospel as a witness with the fruits of the Spirit, as a demonstration of what Christ's character is like, so that the National Sunday Law can then be allowed to move forward. And so we want to be among the people who God uses 
to be filled with the Spirit. We want to be the wise virgins with the extra oil in our vessels, which is our life, which is our heart and our mind and our soul. We want to have that extra oil, the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, so that we can reflect Christ and we can be prepared when the final crisis hits. And friends, as I look around us and as I see what's happening, this whole crisis right now isn't necessarily settling down. We've had the pandemic and now we're having civil unrest and there's certainly some, some just causes that are being protested, but civil unrest is definitely taking place and we need to keep an eye on things prophetically because if the world continues the way it is, I just don't know how much longer we can go on. And the fact that all of this is happening suggests to me that we as God's people are getting closer and closer to being ready to receive the seal of the living God. So if your heart's not right with the Lord today, make sure that you surrender all, place all on the altar, and that you're ready for him to come. And I'm looking forward to next week's study. We're going to go through the four stages of the National Sunday Law. It doesn't just hit all at once and it's over in a couple of days. There's a, a progression to it, and we're going to see that. And so make sure you come back next week for that. Before I wrap up, though, I do want to offer a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for showing us this truth about the abomination of desolation. Help us to understand this with clarity. May we be ready to flee at a moment's notice. And may we be ready for your soon coming. And I pray that as we continue through this series, that things will be made clearer and clearer as we continue to, to develop these thoughts. So thank you and be with us. May we be found faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.